The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. Welcome to a fresh trading week here on Sportbox. China's top diplomat railing against foreign bullying as the National People's Congress gears up while fresh data shows Beijing's trade surplus with the U.S. surging by more than $20 billion in just two months. We hope that the United States will move in the same direction and remove all its unreasonable restrictions on bilateral cooperation as early as possible and not create new obstacles. U.S. futures are mixed in early trade, even as President Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus package passes the Senate paving the way for it to be signed into law this week. Everything in this package is designed to relieve the suffering and to meet the most, most urgent needs of the nation and put us in a better position to prevail. Meanwhile, Brent breaks above $70 per barrel for the first time since the pandemic began, whilst WTI touches two-year highs as Saudi Arabia's production facilities come under missile attack. And the US and EU agree to a tariff truce, suspending a 17-year dispute over illegal subsidies for both Boeing and Airbus. Meanwhile, Europe is reportedly urging the United States to allow the export of millions of AstraZeneca COVID vaccine doses as it scrambles to bridge supply shortages in the bloc. So let's kick off with the uh, latest from China. The country has urged the United States to meet halfway, calling for Washington to remove, quote, unreasonable curbs on cooperation. The government's top diplomat, Wang Yi, says competition between the two nations should not result in, quote, zero-sum finger-pointing. Let's get out to Sam for for more on this story here. So Sam, just contextualise this for us. Are the Chinese trying to reset the clock to a time pre-President uh, Trump? Good morning to you, Jeff. Well, I mean, so far it just does seem that uh, so much for a reset in relations, as many certainly were anticipating under the Biden administration. But I really think it's no surprise uh, that Wang Yi uh, did strike this fairly tough tone when it came to speaking uh, about the U.S. While he did say that China was uh, certainly uh, ready to work with the U.S. to get bilateral relations back on track, he really did use this as an opportunity uh, to clarify China's position when it came to these very sensitive issues of Xinjiang, Hong Kong and Taiwan, which we know are areas that the Biden administration has continued to keep the pressure on Beijing. Of course, uh, the Biden team has signalled that we are likely to see this tough stance continued, as we did see with the Trump administration. Uh, But Wang Yi uh, did say uh, that this claim of genocide against Uyghur Muslims uh, in Xinjiang, as the Biden team has reiterated, uh, is uh, preposterous, adding that it's a rumour and uh, a complete lie. We know that China has repeatedly warned the US to stay out of its internal affairs. But take a listen to what Wang Yi had to say over the weekend. 
For quite some time now, the United States has been willfully interfering in other countries' internal affairs in the name of democracy and human rights. That has created lots of trouble in the world, and in some cases turbulence and conflict. It is important that the United States recognizes this as soon as possible, otherwise the world will remain far from tranquil. Now, on the issue of Taiwan, which, of course, Beijing has says is one of its most sensitive issues in its relationship with Washington, Wang Yi did say there's no room for compromise. He said that China hopes that the U.S. will change how it has previously dealt with Taiwan. Of course, China recognises this island as a renegade Chinese province and not a country and therefore not eligible for state-to-state relations. And it has been increasingly suspicious of U.S. intentions towards the island. At the same time, though, Wang Yi uh, certainly did talk about areas that uh, the US and China could perhaps uh, work together. That includes uh, areas uh, like health and climate change. Now, we have got both of the sides talking about multilateralism, but there perhaps seems to uh, be different ideas about what that actually looked like. Of course, uh, we've got the Biden team uh, talking about how it wants to work alongside allies to really counter the challenges and the economic threats posed by China. And Beijing uh, has opposed this idea of uh, group politics. Politics. So while many, uh, as I said, were anticipating this reset in relations, it does certainly seem uh, that we are seeing this continued tough stance. No, it's not so much in the tone, uh, but certainly in the approach. Guys, back to you in London. Sam, thank you very much for bringing us the update around China. Let's push on to the latest around stimulus as markets are moving early on. As the U.S. House is expected to give final approval to President Biden's $1.9 trillion relief package on Tuesday. The Senate passed the bill over the weekend in a narrow party line vote after Democrats agreed to scale back the plan to gain support from moderates. The new version trims jobless aid and removes a federal minimum wage hike and narrows eligibility for a fresh round of stimulus checks. Meanwhile, to the response that we saw from Biden, uh, speaking after the Senate, Biden said the package will help support Americans struggling during the pandemic. When I was elected, I said we were going to get the government out of the business of battling on Twitter and back in the business of delivering for the American people, of making a difference in their lives, giving everyone a chance, a fighting chance, of showing the American people that their government can work for them. And passing the American Rescue Plan will do that. Well, to add to the upside impetus for these markets, the U.S. economy added 379,000 jobs in February. Now, that's more than double the previous month and well ahead of estimates. So if I just take a pause there a second. So the analysts thought there was going to be 200,000 jobs created, yeah? There were 379,000 jobs created. So they got that one unambiguously wrong, yeah? What if they're just as wrong on inflation? Just chucking it out there. They all seem to be convinced that inflation is just about base effects. And they're probably right. But if they're as, as wrong on inflation as they were on the payroll, interesting. All right, OK. Meanwhile, the unemployment rate fell to 6.2%. The country's labour market remains about 9.5 million jobs short of pre-crisis levels. So you've got good payroll figures. You've got high hopes that we're finally going to get uh, the ink hitting the paper on, on the stimulus 
uh, from the Biden administration. Big win, early win for Joe Biden fairly soon if he can get that across the line, regardless of the fact that some of the progressives in his party and some of the conservatives in his party, he's got to corral them over the line, hasn't he? Because there is a, a bit of contention there on the two wings of the Democrat Party. But in the meantime, look at this. Big rally for the US markets. Big rally uh, actually uh, off the lows as well. So let me just show you the S&P session chart where we were in negative territory early on in the session. Uh, there you can see. And then later on, the market picked up a big head of steam uh, as they digested what we got from the payroll as well. The Treasury as well. Everyone's looking at these yields again. Uh, where is the panic button going to be hit on the 10-year? Uh, some people saying 1.75, get a two-handle. But at the moment, not far away from where we finished the trading uh, at the tail end on Friday. 158 as well. The uh, 30-year trading 2.3. Actually, the spread between the 2 and the 10 uh, getting up to the kind of 147 level that we haven't seen, 147 basis point level that we haven't seen uh, since tail end of 2015. A lot of action in the oil market at the moment as well. And again, Saudi Arabia orchestrating things last week over at the OPEC Plus meeting, uh, getting the desired result they wanted. Well, this time around, of course, because of that uh, potential hit to their facilities, concerns just re-emerging about geopolitics as well. Another couple of percent blip up in the price to historically high levels compared we were. We were 71 bucks now, give or take the change, on Brent, 67 handle on WTI. Let's have a look at the US futures and where they're currently trading. Bit of a mixed bag there as well. But what is absolutely fascinating at the moment in the uh, markets is the leadership. And I know we've spent a long time looking at this, but I've just got a few stats for the audience on leadership in these markets. So year to date. Now, you're not going to be surprised anyone to hear this amongst our viewers, but the numbers are quite interesting. Energy is up as a subsector in terms of individual sector, 38.6% this year. 38% this year. Financials are up 14% and consumer discretionary, i.e. Amazon, and IT services are down 3.3, big pardon, 3.4 and 1.3% respectively. So the switch in leadership has been violent. And I'll tell you one more thing I want to say about this before Jeff and Karen come in here. The ownership of the US market has been herded around certain very illustrious tech names, yeah? No one could ever argue that leadership in terms of retail investors or institutional investors was centered around the energy names as well. I mean, that would be a big stretch as well. So when energy rallies as well, that's a less held sector more broadly or in the round uh, than some of these IT and consumer sectors. So I wonder what that means for your average investor. So the question is uh, risk off or rotation? And I think um, your numbers suggest the latter. Uh, and I'll throw some more numbers in, which will just support the case that you're making effectively. So Jeffrey's compiled some fund flow data about money moving in and out of ETFs. Mm -hmm. And so I just looked at the data points and pulled out the numbers that I thought looked most dramatic at this point. So energy, to reflect what you're talking about in terms of the move, energy net flow as percentage of assets up 17.3% year to date. Financials up 26.2%, which is a reflection of people's belief in the reflation trade, mm. supporting the financials. Materials up 17.9%. When you get down to things like technology, you're positive 1%. But the real loser is high yield, negative 8.5% from mm. high yield ETFs, which suggests that the market is beginning 
to whiff a little bit of a catastrophe or potential calamity when it comes to those very tightly priced um, junk bonds at this point here. But the fact that we are seeing positive flow into these other sectors would appear to me instructive of that idea that this is a rotation rather than a risk off, Karen. Yeah, I take your point. And if you look at some of the economist assumptions now on the back of this stimulus plan, the 1.9 trillion, I mean, JP Morgan is saying this will add roughly uh, to the tune of, um, you know, six to seven percent on EPS growth this year. Because if if you look at what uh, a six, or six to seven percent upside, I should say, for the markets, four to five dollars on EPS growth. And this, uh, as you see, about one trillion of uh, fiscal stimulus adds to four to five dollars. So you, you work it out in the 1.9 trillion number. So six to seven percent upside for the markets is still somewhat compelling at this point. But you've got to ask the question, which part of the market? And I still question just how much far we can go down on the technology sector. We've certainly seen a pullback there and this sell-off, the momentum sell-off started around mid-February and it has continued. But if you look back at the comments from those that follow the technology names back around uh, some of that selling uh, 23rd of February, for instance, they're still saying that this presents an opportunity because you look at the long-term momentum of uh, the technology story and we're only early doors when it comes to this digital acceleration. So I do question, one of the stocks, don't forget, on Wall Street that rallied in that Friday session was actually Microsoft. And that is the story at the forefront of that change that we're talking about. I just, so, so you're saying people who are long technology stocks think they're going up. Is that what you were saying? No, I'm not. I'm saying analysts who cover the sector. So they're not putting the bets on. But they're just they purely assessing on, what we're looking long at on the revenue recommendations. Side. They are long the sector because of their buy recommendations. <laughs> How many of the short recommendations that were there before have turned around and said, now take your profits? I, I, I doubt many. I take your point, but I think that if you've got someone looking at the fundamentals, and I think what jumped out to me the other week, you saw a huge amount of selling in one stock, and that was Apple stock. And, you know, you've seen people buy this stock before on not much evidence, on a lot of bad news effectively, yet the stock has still rallied extremely hard. This time around, it just struck me that the stock was selling off very aggressively when you finally had a bunch of good views around the outlook for that stock on all the different metrics you look for around services, around the devices. Uh, I just thought it was quite extraordinary that you went, once you get a momentum sell-off, it's very hard to stand in the way of that, but the fundamentals can actually look better. Now, it jumps out to me long-term. I think maybe it's still a story that a lot of investors will be looking at. Just short-term, there's enormous concern because of the selling that's taking place to rotate elsewhere. So I would be wary of that. But strategically, long term, I think there might still be an opportunity. Uh, let's move on. It is having some impact on some uh, big investment houses. ARK Investment Management's technology and growth stock focused funds have taken a hit this year, with all five of them plunging more than 20% from recent highs and entering a bear market. ARK Invest apparently has seen $2.1 billion in redemptions over the last eight trading days. Our U.S. colleagues will speak to the fund's founder and CEO, Kathy Wood. That's 2100 CET today. And still to come, we bring you the latest on Europe's vaccine saga, including a plea for help. Well, here on the podcast, there's a slight disagreement about tech valuations, but uh, maybe there is. Maybe I know that already. Anyway, for the latest from the China's National People's Congress, as well as the broader market moves, check out the Squawk Box podcast. I'm told it's rather vintage this time around.
ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. Two German lawmakers from Angela Merkel's Christian Democratic bloc have resigned over allegations they personally profited from government contracts for face masks. Nicholas Lobel admitted on Sunday that he had earned €250,000 acting as a middleman for a supplier. It comes just a week after fellow MP George Nusselin had his offices searched amid reports he'd received as much as €650,000 for brokering an agreement. Meantime, Austrian authorities have stopped rolling out a batch of AstraZeneca's vaccine after a 49-year-old woman died from, quote, severe coagulation disorders. And another woman developed a pulmonary embolism shortly after receiving the shot. Austria's health authority says there's no evidence the vaccine is to blame. AstraZeneca said it will support an investigation. Meanwhile, the European Commission is expected to urge the US to send millions of AstraZeneca vaccines its way. The EU's troubled rollout has drawn political fire and last week saw Italy and the Commission block a shipment of jabs meant for Australia amid supply shortfalls. Let's get out to our colleague Juliana for more on this. Juliana, there's been much criticism about Europe blocking vaccines destined for other parts of the world, uh, vaccines that have been produced in Europe. Now the Europeans are asking the Americans to honour any production of vaccines in the United States and send it their way. It's uh, hypocrisy, isn't it? Well, Karen, it's a really interesting proposition, this EU-US vaccine uh, relationship that seems to be emerging. The FT reported on Saturday that the EU plans to effectively ask the US to send over millions of doses of the vaccine. And why I say it's interesting is because if you look at where the US and the EU each are respectively in their vaccine rollout, it could make a lot of sense. You'll remember that last week, President Biden came out and said that based on their estimates for dose delivery from Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, and Pfizer. They'll have enough vaccine doses in the U.S. to provide a vaccine for every American adult by the end of May. So the U.S. is in a very strong position with just those three vaccines. They've yet to even approve the AstraZeneca vaccine. Meanwhile, they have ordered 300 million doses of it. If you look at the EU side of things, of course, they are struggling with their vaccination rollout and with AstraZeneca in particular. In particular, AstraZeneca already revised down their original plan when it comes to delivery for the EU. Uh, They had initially been planning to send uh, at least 100 million doses by the end of March. Now they're aiming for just 40 million. And even then, there are still questions over whether they'll be able to deliver. AstraZeneca insists they will be. So now we've got this potential uh, deal here where the EU and the U.S. negotiate uh, a plan where the U.S. may export millions of these vaccine doses to the EU. It, of course, remains to be seen whether this happens. Uh, But uh, to your point around the hypocrisy of the EU blocking the export of vaccines to other parts of the world, I think all of it plays to this idea that the EU is struggling with its vaccination rollout and looking for pragmatic solutions. Guys?
Thank you very much indeed for that, Juliana. Right, Aditya Goenka, who is a professor of economics at the University of Birmingham, joins us now. Professor, excellent you could join us so early. Thank you so much indeed for joining us. Well, look, let me just pick up with our correspondent there as well, from our correspondent as well. There's something extraordinarily weird going on, looking at Europe from the outside as well. You see such hesitancy, such lack of will to want to take on board the AstraZeneca vaccine from medical professionals, from certain politicians, for certain age demographics. And at the same time, they seem so determined not to let anyone export this drug as well. What's going on, sir? I think so. There's a combination of uh, two things. One is that the narrative has become that AstraZeneca is a second-rate vaccine in Europe. Um, it's also the vaccine which is least costly of all the vaccines available. So if you look at the um, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, they're about 10 times more expensive than the AstraZeneca vaccine. It's also a conventional vaccine, so it's easier to roll out. So while the EU would like its citizens to have uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine, because it's easier to deliver, it's less costly. The narrative has become that uh, the citizens are hesitant to get the AstraZeneca vaccine. I, I have real problems with our political classes at the best of times. But when you get one of the most important men in Europe saying it is quasi ineffective for certain age groups, and then later on, about a month later, saying, oh, it's time to rehabilitate this drug, I just give up with the politicians. Do you feel the same, sir? Yes, I think so. The politicians have not handled this very well. Um, I think so. There are questions in terms of why they have chosen to go to AstraZeneca. Uh, when EU has had the opportunity to order more Moderna vaccines, most EU countries did not choose to order additional Moderna vaccines. They're much more expensive. They're much more difficult to deliver. So I think so. There are questions out there. I think so. New vaccines like Johnson and Johnson also have questions which will be raised in terms of um, accept accept acceptability within Europe. So there are issues uh, which need to be navigated much much better. Didier, can I ask you, or, or Professor, I should say, can I ask you, how do we balance the uh, reopening of the economy with the pace of the vaccination programme here? We, we've just meet, reached this uh, milestone now where we're talking about the uh, over 56s being inoculate, inoculated. The hospital admittance rate has dropped by something like 41%. Can we not open the economy more quickly on the basis of the success that we're seeing? I think so. It's very problematic because the fall in the numbers is also due to the effectiveness of the lockdown. So we don't we know that vaccination makes a difference, but it's not the entire story because a lot of the people who actually transmit the uh, virus, younger people, including school children, that's much more controversial. But we know that the younger population, because they're more uh, working more and uh, given the habits, they transfer it more. They are not vaccinated. So there is always going to be this tension how fast the economy can reopen when the vaccination program does not have very high coverage. I think so America and Israel are doing much better in terms of vaccinating this population at a faster rate than the EU or even the UK. 
Professor, what we've seen at this point has been a scramble for available vaccines, but AstraZeneca will uh, see that uh, vaccine produced in India soon. Will we be entering a new phase where there won't be the same scramble for vaccines, at least in developed countries? Yes. So AstraZeneca's vaccines being manufactured in India are being exported to Canada. Uh, from what I understand, UK and EU have are looking at the production facilities in India to import potentially import vaccines from India. But the EU has authorized uh, three different locations: uh, Europe, UK, and US for AstraZeneca vaccines. They have not authorized the Indian manufacturer as yet. So once they do that. Uh, there may be a, a window where uh, vaccine rollout is going to be faster. In India, the, the AstraZeneca vaccine, the Indian government hasn't taken up all the doses allocated to it. So there are potentially vaccines, AstraZeneca vaccines uh, available from the Indian manufacturer. Professor, unfortunately, we have to leave it there, but lovely hearing your voice today sir, and hearing your thoughts. Thank you very much indeed for that. Professor Aditya Gunka, who is a Professor of Economics at the University of Birmingham. You, you had your letter yet? Uh, no, I'm not old <laughs> enough. How about you? Not old enough. <laughs> we can't say that for much longer, can we? No, that's true. No, we, we, we're hoping to be in the tranche after next, aren't yes, we? Yes, something like that. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.